The views and opinions expressed in this podcast are simply that, opinions. All are presumed innocent until proven otherwise in a court of law. Sensitive topics are discussed. Discretion is advised. On this week's Court TV podcast, after two weeks of testimony from the prosecution, the defense got their opportunity to present their case. Court TV's Michael Ayala is back with me to discuss their strategy and whether or not it worked. This is the Court TV podcast with Vinny Politan. I'm Vinny Politan. Thank you so much for downloading the Court TV podcast. And we are at the end of all the evidence in the case against Derek Chauvin. The prosecution has put in their evidence and rested. The defense has put in their evidence and rested. Um, But we haven't had an opportunity to go through this defense case yet here on the podcast because the defense case moved so quickly. I mean, it was fast, lightning fast. And a lot of times uh, defense cases are fast. Sometimes there's no case. Uh, But they clearly uh, had some uh, issues and points they wanted to make. But did they do a good job? Did they make their point? Let's bring in Court TV anchor Michael Ayala, my friend, my colleague, Um, All right, let's start here, Michael. Overall, overall, do you think the defense was able to do what they could do with the the hand that they were dealt? Did they leave anything out that they should have done here? I think they did an incredible job um, with the facts that they were dealt. This is a difficult, difficult case. I cannot stress that enough. Um, I think the stress of the case began to show and began to wear on Eric Nelson. That became clear. But I think, you know, he gave this this lone wolf persona. But I'm not sure that was too far from the truth. You know, there was, you (laughs) know, he certainly wasn't play acting. Yeah, I'm not sure it was play acting. I think, you know, certainly he has a support staff back at the office. We all know that he has a firm, he's a managing partner. But at the end of the day, he certainly didn't have the resources that the prosecution had, and it was beginning to show. So I commend him on the job that he did. Uh, I thought he did what he could. I remember in the motion practice, when he, um, he had mentioned having a hard time getting experts to testify, specifically on the use of force. And he ended up with this guy that he ended up putting on the stand who was, I think, a big flop. So on that front, I don't think he uh, accomplished his goals. But certainly, I, I think he was able to... Uh, score some points with his cause of death uh, expert who came in and was unflappable, um, presented his thoughts as to these other um, possible causes of death that, you know, if a juror is inclined and has difficulty um, putting themselves in the shoes of a police officer, there was enough there that they could find reasonable doubt. All right. So let's start to break it down. Let's let's go through it piece by piece. And I want to start with the defendant himself. Uh, Derek Chauvin, as you know, every defendant can take the stand and defend themselves and tell their story. Here was Derek Chauvin making his choice in court. Um, Have you made a decision uh, today whether you intend to testify or whether you intend to invoke your Fifth Amendment privilege? Uh, I will invoke my Fifth Amendment privilege today. So that means he will remain silent, remain silent, did not speak. And the jury, really, Michael, did not hear much from Derek Chauvin. Uh, That part that we heard, the jury will not hear, but they only heard him in in a few little pieces of body cam. There was no interview. There was no interrogation. There was no statement. There was nothing. So 
By him not testifying, I think it was the right choice for the defense because the burden's on the prosecution to prove what's going on in his mind. You know, the answer to the question that everybody wants, which is why were you doing that for nine minutes and 29 seconds? Um, They're going to have to prove some other way, but not through his words. Yeah, and I think it was the right choice as well, Vinny. Um, Most of the defense's case was able to be made through prosecution witnesses and their own witnesses. You didn't necessarily need to put Derek Chauvin on the stand to make their case. All of his thought process, they could go through other um, people at the scene. So for instance, um, we saw Peter Chang, the park officer. When you talk about mindset, what was in his mind? Well, of course, the defense's argument is that Derek Chauvin was afraid of the crowd and that's what affected his, his duty of care and how he was able to act uh, vis-a-vis George Floyd. Well. Do we need him to get on the stand and tell us what he thought? Not really, because we can hear Peter Chang tell us how he viewed the crowd and that he was afraid for the officers. We can also get the testimony of the paramedics who showed up and decided to do what they call a grab and go because they didn't feel the scene was secure and safe. So if they thought it, you can transfer that into the mind of Derek Chauvin. Why would he think it as well? So all the elements that they wanted, the defense wanted this jury to know about what was going on with um, Derek Chauvin, they could get into other evidence. And it was not, I think, in the end, worth the risk. You know, I I look at it and I think the only way he could have been effective as a witness, and I don't know if this, you know, how it would exactly play out, would be for him to get up on the stand and admit he made an incredible error that he was negligent, almost getting up on the stand and confessing and admitting to manslaughter, but then explaining to the jury what was in his mind that I did not intend to harm him. I did not want to, you know, and and just humanize himself, but admit what he did and confess and uh, literally confess to manslaughter by, by saying, you know, I've had a chance to look back on it and I've watched the video. I can't believe I did that was... That was horrible. I made a terrible mistake. I I should have done this. I should have done that. But I didn't because, uh, you know, in the moment, you know, and then whatever he has to say. But I think that's the only way he could have somewhat been effective. And I think it's something that should have been considered because I don't think a jury sends him home across the board, you know, with three not guilties here. Yeah, I think on on one level, uh, a manslaughter conviction in this case only, I think, is a win. For the defense, they'd be very happy with that. Um, As we all know, he was willing to take a plea on that third degree murder charge uh, with a 10 year sentence. So anything less than that, any charge less than that, I think the defense would consider it a win. Um, But I disagree with you as to what he could have accomplished by going on and doing the mea culpa on the stand or, you know, uh, apologizing and admitting certain things, because all that does is it opens up the door for the prosecution to now bring in evidence of his 18 other problems he's had with people, use of force issues he's had uh, while on the force. And that's going to make him look disingenuous to say, oh, I didn't mean it in this case. Oh, but really, I got 18 other cases where you did it. And didn't you mean it all those 18 times? So it becomes a little bit of a problem there. So again, I think the risk was too high. But I will say this, the one thing that's missing from this case, as far as the defense is concerned, is any sign of remorse whatsoever. And I think, I think, like you said, I think this case needs that on some level. 
um, you know, to move this forward, to move our country forward, um, to move the family forward, there needs to be a healing. And I think part of that healing could come from remorse. Um, and part of that healing can come from uh, a serious conviction in this case. And we didn't get the remorse. We didn't get the testimony. Um, but we'll see if we get the conviction. And I, I don't think you'll hear the remorse in the sentencing phase either because he'll have an outstanding appeal. So he's not going to admit to anything. All right, let's let's get to to the the man you refer to as the flopper, who is uh, Barry Broad, who is the use of force expert that the defense put up on the witness stand. Um, let's take a listen to part of his direct examination. Now, um, so in terms of the initial uses of force, the officers' efforts uh, to get Mr. Floyd into the car, you felt that they were objectively reasonable. I did. Did the use of force then continue after uh, Mr. Floyd was restrained on the ground? I don't consider a prone control as a use of force. Um, let's, let's back up just a second. The removal or um, Mr. Floyd's getting out of the vehicle, however that was, um, did it, did it, does that constitute a use of force? Um, the manhandling or the three officers taking Mr. Floyd out of the car and placing him on the ground. Yes, that's a use of force. All right. So this is a this is an interesting um, perspective and opinion from the use of force expert saying that it wasn't force prone control, putting George Floyd in the prone position, handcuffed on the ground and controlling him with your uh, legs and knees uh, is not use of force. Is that just a. I almost get that as sort of a play on words, right? Because, I mean, it, it requires some level of you doing something to restrain someone. Well, you know, part, part, of, part of his credibility issues revolved around that statement. I think it's pretty clear for anyone who watches the video, and the problem is the video for that particular type of testimony, because you can clearly see that they're using force on George Floyd. Right. And the fact that the end result was death to say that it wasn't force. And then I think a little later on, he said, had he not resisted, he could have been resting comfortably on a, in the prone position. I, I, that, again, I think is going to not resonate very well with the jury. But on cross-examination, they questioned him about that statement. Didn't he? And the prosecutor, Jerry Blackwell, got him to, to, to recognize that during that time, you now he had not seen this in his first viewing or his viewing of the tape when he reviewed the, the tape of the arrest that George Floyd was complaining of pain. And so he asked him, he said, he's complaining of pain. He said, well, I missed that the first time around. He says, so even though he's complaining of pain, you still say it's not a use of force because his explanation as to why the, the use of, it was not a use of force is because they weren't inflicting pain. But you have George Floyd on tape saying, this hurts. You're hurting me. So it was just one of those things where I think um, not only was his testimony on direct incredible, I think, and by that, I mean, not credible. And um, I think on cross, they did a really good job of showing he had not done his homework and really was not someone that this jury should take seriously. Yeah. And doing your homework on this case um, is not that difficult. I mean, you watch Every single video, you listen to the statements of everyone that was there, but then you watch the videos again and again and again, frame by frame. And that's what needs to be done. I mean, if you're an expert, that's your expertise. You, you've, got, you've got to be prepared. And I, 
I did not understand how you're not prepared for that moment. I mean, that that's that's inexcusable. Um, let's listen to a little bit more of the cross-examination. Mr. Floyd is face down, handcuffed behind the back, correct? Yes. And uh, at some point, the defendant is on top of him. Is that right? I think he had his knee on him. I'm not sure if I would describe that as being on top of him. Uh, if I may uh, publish to the witness Exhibit 17. And so, uh, as stated, as shown here in Exhibit 17, you're able to see the exhibit. Is that right? Yes. All right. And you see that the uh, defendant has his knee on top of Mr. Floyd. Is that correct? I see his knee in the vicinity of the upper back and neck area. Is it on the top or the bottom of Mr. Floyd? It's on his back. Top being top of the head, or? You tell me, is it on the top, the bottom, the side? Where is his knee? I see his knee on the upper spine and neck area. Is the upper spine then on the top? Okay, we can go, we can use top. Okay, you would agree with me then? Yes. Okay. That's silly. <laughs> exactly, Vinny. I was just going to say that, that right there, you know, and you could see he, he came across as a paid, a hired gun who didn't want to hurt the people who were paying him. So he just refused to agree with something that was so blatantly obvious to anyone who looks at the photo that it just, again, the credibility is just shot. And, and you've got to pick your, your fights when you're, when you're an expert. Like, you know you're going to be cross-examined, but you've got to pick the spots and, and, and have a, a feel for the room and have a feel for, you know, a little common sense and how is this playing. And yeah, that was a little problematic, <laughs> to say the least. But I think we've we've been saying from the beginning of this case that that is not where that that's not where this case is going to be potentially won by the defense. This is your this is your worst issue. I mean, no one's going to look at that because on my show and on your show, I mean, did I I did not have a police officer or a criminal defense attorney or or a criminal defense attorney who represents police come on the air and say that looked okay. You know, there's other issues that they, they may have some issues with in this case, but that was not one of them. That was one where you almost have to concede it. You could, I know you have to fight everything, but there's a way to do it and there's a way to not do it. No, I agree. You got to read the room. You're exactly right. You, you got to pick your fights. And that's certainly, and, and I'm, you know, we're on, we're on a podcast, so people may not know. Exhibit 17 is that video, I mean, that, that frame of the video that everyone's seen where basically, Derek Chauvin is almost at, at, at almost perpendicular to George Floyd with his knee across his neck. So, you know, to argue that it just it made no sense. And, and let me let me say something about that photo because the prosecution has played the video several times and the defense has played it several times, but that photo has been used over and over and over again, and that is purposely done by the prosecution. That is. Uh, and I'm not trying to be glib here, but if if that's like the 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 money shot, right? That's like the the thing that tells the whole story. That is your one image that you want the jury, you want it burned in their mind, seared in their mind. Not the whole video, just that one image, that picture. And I think prosecutors have done that. 
And, and that is probably one of the most effective ways that they have presented witnesses and cross-examined witnesses. Yeah, especially when you consider, Vinny, that part of, or at least part of the narrative that the defense is trying to create in this case, is that the knee wasn't necessarily on the neck, that it was in fact on the upper back. And we had a couple of people testify to that. Uh, incredibly, we had uh, Dr. Baker testify to that, saying he didn't think the knee was on the neck. And then we, of course, heard Brody testify to that, their use of a force expert. Um, so that's a narrative that the defense was trying to portray. So the continual showing of that video where I don't think there's anyone other than those two people who could say that's not on the deck um, was very, very important and powerful for the prosecution. Because that's what you want. You want the jury to go back into that room and you want certain images and themes and you got to sort of make it simple. And there's nothing that is clearer than that, uh, that still photograph that they've used over and over again. All right, when we come back, some of the upside for the defense on their case, because there was an upside, folks, and we'll talk about it when we come back. For more Court TV, watch it on cable, over the air, Roku, or go to CourtTV.com and stream live gavel-to-gavel coverage. Catch up on the big moments from our current cases and relive some of Court TV's most historic trials. Court TV, your front row seat to justice. On that date, were you at the Cup Foods located in Minneapolis? Yes. Yes. Did you run into anybody that you knew while you were there? Yes, George Floyd. And uh, while you were at the Cup Foods or in the Cup Foods, did you have an opportunity to observe Mr. Floyd's behavior, demeanor, things of that nature? Yes. How would you describe Mr. Floyd's behavior while inside of the Cup Foods? Happy, normal, talking, alert. That is Shawanda Hill. That is George Floyd's ex, as she said on the witness stand, but was also one of the passengers in his Mercedes that day. She testified and was called by the defense to talk about George Floyd's demeanor. Now, that's the part of the demeanor that we saw on the video inside Cup Foods where he's happy and alert. But then there was his demeanor and how he was acting when he was back in the Mercedes after they left Cup Foods. Uh, And that came up on direct, but it also came up on cross. Take a listen. Uh, During this time period... Mm-hmm. Coming out from Cup Foods and being in the vehicle, mm-hmm. did he complain of shortness of breath at all? No. Uh, did he complain of chest pains at all? No. And other than being sleepy or nodding off a little bit, did he seem no. abnormal to you in any way? Not at all. And did he seem startled when the officer pulled a gun on him? Very. I have nothing further. All right. Now, there's there's a couple of parts about the demeanor of George Floyd that I think the defense wanted out in front of this jury. It's one that he's he seems happy and he's fine and, and alert and dancing inside Cup Foods. And then Shawanda Hill testifies that moments later when they're back in the Mercedes and she gets on a telephone call, he falls asleep and she's got to wake him up. So um, Michael Ayala is still with us, Court TV anchor Michael. To me, um, that is going to be used, I believe, by the defense to talk about the, the drug use of, of this demeanor, that he's, he's sleepy, he's, he's conking out in the middle of the day. There's no question that it's consistent with having fentanyl in his system, which we know was in his system. Um, so that certainly is a point that the defense is going to harp on, and it's important um, for their overall defense that it was, in fact, 
uh, these other factors that killed him and got the knee on the neck. Um, but again, um, I think what you have here is this, and we talked about this, this, this is not necessarily a but for case, but I think the jury will look at that and say, okay, he was falling asleep in the car, but would he have died if, you left, if left alone in the car? I think the answer is clearly no. And so I'm not sure that that's gonna get them where they wanna go as far as the defense is concerned, but that in conjunction with other testimony could be enough to raise a bit of reasonable doubt that the, the knee on the neck was not the substantial factor, that in fact, this fentanyl in the system was having this effect. You combine that with the testimony of the paramedics about what previous pills it had, the effect that it had uh, to put him into a hypertensive emergency, um, connect all those dots, and then the testimony of Dr. Fowler, maybe that gets you to reasonable doubt. Yeah, and you mentioned Dr. Fowler, uh, clearly the best witness for the defense. Uh, this is going to be... Um, one of two roads to reasonable doubt for them. So let's take a listen to his direct examination. So in my opinion, Mr. Floyd had a sudden cardiac arrhythmia or cardiac arrhythmia due to his atherosclerotic and hypertensive heart disease. Or you can write that down multiple different ways. Um, during his restraint and subdued by the police or restrained by the police. Um, and then his significant contributory conditions would be, since I've already put the heart disease in part one, he would have the toxicology, the fentanyl and methamphetamine. Um, there is exposure to a vehicle exhaust, so potentially carbon monoxide poisoning, or at least an effect from increased carbon monoxide in his bloodstream, and paraganglionoma or the other natural disease process that he has. So um, all of those combined to cause Mr. Floyd's death. And that is cause of death. And the other part of, of what a pathologist determines is manner of death. And when he was talking about manner of death, he's talking about undetermined. You, you, you can't really figure it out. There's too many factors at play here. And to me, um, that was the way to go. To me, that is the most credible way to look at this as, as a defense expert. Is say, listen, this is happening, that's happening. I, you know, you, you can't determine it. And if you can't determine it, ladies and gentlemen, then that is reasonable doubt. So if, if they believe uh, Dr. Fowler on, on manner of death, then this is a, a not guilty verdict across the board, Michael. You know, we talked about this being a battle of the experts at the end of the day. And this is going to be a battle between the testimony of Dr. Tobin and the testimony of Dr. Fowler, right? Because at the end of the day, you're exactly right. His testimony was strong. It was confident. He was unflappable on cross, although there were points made by the prosecution. He was fairly unflappable. He was an example of someone who knew which battles to fight and which ones not to fight. But at the end of the day, you have to say, I have Dr. Tobin's testimony on one side, very clearly with animations and, and with uh, frame by frame, he goes through the last breaths of George Floyd. He gives you these visuals of his fingers trying to keep him up so he can breathe and holding on to a tire and, and all those visuals that you keep in your head. And then you have the testimony of, of the doctors, uh, Dr. Fowler saying, it's really tough to determine because of all these other things. You have to make a decision as a juror. Which one of those guys is more credible? Which one of those guys made more sense? 
which one of those guys was more impactful to me? And I think that's where this case lies, right there. And I think what Nelson has to do from the defense is say, in this battle of the experts, which one of these two has done thousands of autopsies? Which one of these two has spent his entire life figuring out cause and manner of death? And that's Dr. Fowler. It's not Tobin. He's not a pathologist. He's not even a patho- this isn't his job. This is not what he does. This is what Dr. Fowler does. And who's, and who's more in line with Dr. Baker, whose job it was to determine cause and manner of death for George Floyd? Who is more in line with the independent expert in this case who happens to work for Hennepin County? That's what I would argue if I was if I was Nelson. I'd be jumping up and down the table, but I don't think he'll ever jump up up and down on a table. No, that's is, not his personality. And we knew that's that not his personality. I spoke to a lot of people about him, Vinny, as you know, and uh, they all said he's not a guy that's going to come with the histrionics. He's just a competent. He's very prepared. I think all the things people said about him have proven to be true. Yeah, and and it may and, and you know what? There are jurors who appreciate that, and there are jurors who would not appreciate me jumping up and down on the table if, if I was going to do that. <laughs> You know, and and I get it. And the the other thing is the cross-examination. I'm wondering your your opinion on this, because Nelson in his cross-examination was not he wasn't antagonistic at all. There was no battle. There was no fighting. There was no sarcasm. He he was his direct and cross were almost identical. And I'm wondering if if jurors might appreciate that or not. I, I, I don't know. I don't know, but it's an interesting approach. Yeah, I mean, you don't know how jurors are going to take that. It was clearly, I mean, it seemed like a style. Um, I thought he was very effective on cross-examination of prosecution witnesses. He had a very, uh, as you said, it was a non-confrontational style. He had his questions very well prepared to get these um, witnesses on what we call the yes train. So he constantly getting them to say yes to a lot of things that he can, I could see him ticking off his things in his closing argument, because I want people to understand that when you're attorney and you're trying a case, you know what your argument on close is going to be before you even get to that point. And you're trying to fill in those blanks and tick off those things that you know you need to say in close. And so you can see him ticking off those points that he wants to emphasize in closing with these witnesses. And I thought he did a masterful job, but the tone didn't change. The only time, Vinny, I thought he got confrontational and I thought there was a method to his madness was when he was cross-examining Donald Williams, where he wanted to agitate him a little. So maybe this jury could get a sense of what he looked like angry. And that would help them understand why maybe Chauvin was interpreting his anger a little bit more than maybe it would appear he would should have by just looking at the tape. Yeah. Let me tell you, when I was a prosecutor in New Jersey, uh, th- those that's not a New Jersey criminal defense attorney. Yeah. They are confrontational. They are sarcastic. They are bouncing off the walls. They are loud. Uh, you, 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 you know, you got to keep your eye on them the whole time. And it's a different style. And, and, you know, I've never, I've never covered a trial in Minnesota before. I'm not sure what jurors like there, but the thing that we've seen at court TV through the years, Michael, is that, you know, depending on where you are in the country, um, you know, jurors will, will look at, look at the way lawyers try cases much differently. And there's a different style. That's why I always tell people, you know, they, that when they get in trouble and they, they send me a direct message or whatever about looking for a, a lawyer, I say, you got to find someone who's local. You, you can't like, you, you don't want to be like my cousin Vinny. That doesn't work in real life. <laughs> 
If my cousin Vinny went down south, he's not winning the case, folks. It, it's it's a road game. You know what I'm saying? So um, we'll, we'll see. I mean, he he knows these jurors, and and he probably knows these jurors better than uh, Blackwell, because Blackwell, I don't think, really tries criminal cases in that in that jurisdiction. Uh, but the other two do, so they 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 probably know. But it'll be interesting. It'll be it'll be fascinating. Michael Ayala, uh, give me your 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 final word here, uh, because next time we speak, we'll be after closing arguments. Um, do you think this case can be won or lost for either side during those closing arguments? Absolutely. Without a question, I think a strong closing argument by the defense can make a real difference in this case to really bring together the elements that I saw him ticking off during the case and bringing it together in a coherent way so this jury has something to hang their hat on if they're having trouble determining exactly what the cause of death is or exactly what was in the mind of Derek Chauvin. If he ties this thing together well enough, I think there's room there. There's a good case put on that by the prosecution, no question. I think there's a little bit of room for at least one or two of those jurors to have some reasonable doubt on the issue of not only cause of death, but even the issue of reasonableness. Because again, we talked about it, how hard it is for jurors to put themselves in the shoes of police officers. It's a reasonable police officer standard. Not a reasonable person. Michael Ayala, Court TV anchor. Thank you so much. You're welcome, brother. When we come back, folks, um, we're going to be in a verdict watch in this case. And a lot of people are wondering, now. How, how, they ask me, how long are they going to be out? Well, I have developed through the years at Court TV the Politan Theorem. <laughs> and I will reveal that to you so you have an idea of how long this jury will be out. That is next. Follow Court TV live over the air, uninterrupted. If you're watching television with an antenna, just rescan your channels now to add Court TV. And go to CourtTV.com to see the exact channel position and more ways to watch Court TV in your area. So I've been at Court TV uh, many, 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 many years. I've been covering trials for many, many, many years. Before that, I was uh, a prosecutor in New Jersey also did some private practice. So the one question that always comes up once the jury gets the case, the closing arguments are done, the jury's deliberating, they're back in the room. People say, Vinny, when's this jury coming back? When are they coming back? How long is this going to take? And my answer is, you never know how long it's going to take. It varies. But what I can tell you is how long an average jury would take for any case. Okay, and and I've developed a theorem uh, that is incredibly, incredibly accurate. And but this is the way you have to use the theorem. Okay, I'm going to give you how long jury deliberations should take in this case. But I want you to use that as a baseline. So when I give you that time, if if the verdict comes in before that time, then it was a quick deliberation. If the verdict comes back after that time, then it's a long deliberation. Because that's the other question that always pops up is why have they been out so long? And people will say that after like eight hours. And, and, and it really depends upon the theorem because you need that baseline number that I'm going to give you. And I'm going to give you the secret formula, okay? I'm going to let you know. I'm, I'm revealing it right here on the podcast, what this formula, and you can use it for any trial. And then you can look at it and say, okay, this is when I expect the verdict to be. 
Uh, but if they, they come back quicker, if they come back before that time, it's a quick decision. And then you have to say, well, what does that mean? If they come back quick, what does it mean? If it takes them long, what does it mean? But long and quick varies from trial to trial. All right? So let me give you first the theorem. And, and, and there's, there's two versions of the theorem, one for a long trial and one for a shorter trial. So in, in a shorter trial, because there are some trials that we cover, even murder trials, that just take a, a matter of days. And if, if you're counting the trial in days, then what you do is you add one hour of deliberation for every day of, of, of testimony. It's that simple. So a three-day trial, right, that's a quick trial, three hours of deliberations, boom, you get your verdict. If it comes in before three hours, wow, that was a quick verdict. If it comes in after three hours, huh, why did it take them so long? Now, this trial is is more of a long trial. It's a bit of a tweener, but it's more of a long trial. So I'm going to count this one in weeks. And when you start counting a trial in weeks, you give one day of deliberations for each week of the trial. So uh, this is a about a three-week trial. It was 14 days, but it's about, it about three weeks. So about three days of deliberations. The closing arguments will be on Monday. They'll start deliberating on Monday, but that's not a full day. Then you've got Tuesday, then you've got Wednesday, and then we hit Thursday. So once we hit Thursday, by the end of the day Thursday, that's my cutoff. That's when I would expect this, this, this verdict to come back. If it's a normal deliberation process, okay? If they come back before Thursday, that's a quick deliberation. That's a quick verdict, okay? If they come back after Thursday, then it, it begins to get long. And, and there's another issue here. It's called the Friday factor. When you put the Friday factor, when it falls within the, um, the deadline of the theorem, you'll always have to take into consideration the Friday factor, which tends to speed things up because more than 60% of verdicts on Court TV come in on Fridays. So this one Thursday looks like it's the day, but I wouldn't be shocked if it was Friday. I wouldn't be shocked if it's Friday, right? Maybe they, maybe they, they kind of reach their verdict by the end of the day Thursday, but they want to do one of those, let's sleep on it, right? I've seen jurors do that. They did that in the Scott Peterson case. Scott Peterson, they reached their verdict on a Friday, as I predicted, but then we didn't get a verdict, and then first thing Monday morning, we had a verdict, and it turned out uh, two things were going on there. One, uh, the jury wanted to sleep on it just to make sure and there was one juror who was a single mom of three kids who wanted a weekend sequestered away from her kids over at the embassy suites. So, <laughs> you know, I can't put that into the calculation. But in this case, folks, this is about a three-week trial, about three days of deliberations. I'm looking at Thursday as uh, when I would expect this verdict, you know, later in the day on Thursday. But if it doesn't come in Thursday, for sure on Friday. If we go past Friday... There's, there's a problem. This is a long deliberation, and they're, they're fighting about something. If it comes in before Thursday, it was an easy case for them. So there you have it. You can mark your calendars. Uh, but make sure you're watching Court TV. And make sure you're following me on Facebook as well, because I'll send out a notification when the verdict's coming in. Vinny Politan, Court TV on Facebook. Uh, check out the show notes also, folks. We have a lot of great links for you there. 
Um, and, and as I mentioned, Court TV is a network. We're covering this gavel to gavel. You'll hear all the arguments. You'll see the verdict live. Uh, if you have a digital antenna, rescan that digital antenna so you can get your Court TV signal and you're all locked and loaded and ready to go. I'm Vinny Politan. Thanks so much for listening, and we will speak again. Uh, have a great day, and don't forget to hug the kids. This podcast is a production of Court TV. Go to CourtTV.com for more content, trials on demand, and to find out how to watch Court TV in your area.